Welcome to Boston Venue, the channel backstories. You're going to listen to bonus material culled from the interviews and archives used to create season one of Boston Venue, the channel story, including never-before-heard interviews and commentary from iconic artists, Boston media members, writers, fans, and the cavalcade of colorful characters that frequented the channel and other legendary haunts from the rollicking Boston music scene of the 80s, back when that gritty city would hardly recognize today's shiny modern colossus. Boston Venue The Channel Story has been nominated by the Boston Music Awards 2019 for Music Podcast of the Year. Be sure to cast your vote at bostonmusicawards.com vote. I'm Nate Homan of Dig Boston and the Boston Institute of Nonprofit Journalism. Before she became an author and a teacher, my friend Nancy Burrell booked Minor Threat at the channel in 1983. She connected me with hardcore punk rock pioneer Ian Mackay, who was one of the guest storytellers for episode 6, The Kids Will Have Their Say. Yeah, my, my sense is that it's more like her, not a memoir exactly, but her talking about her experience because she was super active um, in the show, in the Philadelphia scene. She put on a lot of shows and was involved with stuff down there. I have a contract here that's dated May 5th, 1983. And it says, the channel agrees to pay a guaranteed sum of $1,250 to Minor Threat for their performance at the channel at an all-age show on Sunday, June 12, 1983. The channel also agrees to pay Minor Threat an additional $300 as a bonus after 750 paying customers have been admitted. Do you guys remember if you got that extra 300 bonus? I don't, and I'm actually, I know I would have this written down somewhere, and I've been trying, I've tried to been, since we, <clears throat> since you, I knew you were calling, I was trying to dig it up, but I have, I kept various sort of books, like money books. Martha did a short run in the summer of 83. We did a very long tour in the spring, and that was as a, as a five piece, when we were, we were, had just released Out of Step, the 12 inch, and we were <clears throat> really busy. Um, working on, like we went out around the country. But then we came back, and over the summer, we returned to being a um, four-piece. Uh, Brian Baker moved back to, ba- to playing bass, and um, we uh, did a short run in New England. We did a show in Philly uh, at the, a place called the Love Club, and then we played. Um, Boston, the channel, which was, was a great gig. We also played, I think, Gildersleeves in New York, great Gildersleeves. But, you know, we did three or four shows. It was, so I didn't have a tour book for it. And I know, I, I'm sure I have notes on it somewhere, but they're somewhere in these giant files of mine, which I'm not going to be able to get, lay my hand on at the moment. But I do remember the gig. It was interesting because 
Mario and I played in Boston three times. The first show we played at a place called Gallery East, which was an mm-hmm. art gallery that was doing um, punk shows. Um, and we had become friends with Al Burrill, um, and he and I were pen pals. We wrote letters to each other and also spoke on the phone. Um, SSD Control's first record was on half Discord. It was Exclaim Discord. So we were, you know, I was really, at that time I was really eager to try to get bands, um, people in all these different parts of the country to start their own labels. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to have like a Boston label and a Detroit label and a Reno label. So like, the, you know, the Touch and Go, Corey Rusk, you know, when he took over Touch and Go, that was like, that was half Discord. And Kevin Seconds out in Reno, I really tried to get him to start Positive Force Records or Skino Records and we would do half labels. So that was like, Part of a mission that I was really on was trying to get people to start labels, and Exclaim actually was one of those labels. So we were quite close with the, um, with SSD Control, and, and we knew a lot of the Boston kids. Um, so we did the one show at Gallery East, and then we came up a second time. Uh, I think it would have been uh, it would have been early '83. It was that spring we played at VFW. Is that right? No, that was no. I'm sorry. It was eighty. That was eighty summer of '82. I guess. Hold on. Let me think about this now. When did we come up and do that show? We did a show at this VF, VFW hall in Cambridge. That was with the Meat Men and um, the Necros, SSD Control, Minor Threat. As a, and then we came up a third time and we played the channel. The channel was the first time we actually played an actual venue. Um, Boston, of course, has a reputation of being pretty, like the club scene there is, you know, they're kind of, you know, tough guys you know it's more old school rock and roll you know and a little you know yeah a little gangster or something and um i've never you know, i just never was that interested in it like the rat for instance was you know the guys who worked out were you know they're tough guys knuckleheads you know and uh just not and didn't have much interest in punks especially like hardcore punks like us mm-hmm which was fine because we didn't have much interest in them either, you know. So it was like we we were going to do our own shit. We were going to put our own shows on and do our own thing. Um, the fact that we got into the channel was pretty startling. Um, but I don't know who first, like I don't know how Nancy got us in there. It's, I mean, it was rare for us to play in a, a proper venue at that time. Well, from what I've come to understand is that if you were going to play a proper venue in Boston at the time, the channel would have been it. Uh, right, but I'm just saying that we would never even, it would never occur to us that we would have been playing in a proper venue. I mean, we played all over the country in weird, you know, VFW halls and things like that because that was typically, I mean, one thing is our stuff, we had to, you know, we always wanted to be all ages, and I think that was a real dilemma for most nightclubs at the time because people were still hung up on the, I mean, they still are to some degree, but at that point it was, you know, definitely hard to get people to do all ages shows, but that was mandatory for us. Mm-hmm. So she, I mean, Nancy really is the person you need to interview about this because she, she was the genius who pulled it off. Um, I mean, having said that, we wouldn't have done it otherwise. Like we wouldn't have, like we wouldn't have agreed to the show had it not been to our specifications. But she knew Nancy was one of us. She, like, I think you know, they, he was like, we should do, you know, we should do a show, and she said, I, I'll do the show. And so she's the one who really. She knocked on the door or kicked it down, whatever you want to say, you know, but she made it happen. I don't know how many of the punk shows happened there before, honestly. Maybe a lot, maybe none. 
I know Black Flag played, and I know that, like, Sheikh Al Penimsky played, so they had a presence amongst the active scene. Yeah, well, no, but Sheikh Al Penimsky didn't play there before 83. Probably not, no. No, definitely uh, not. I mean, Black Flag almost certainly did. Black Flag are sort of like the Johnny Appleseeds of the punk. I mean, they were not, they were not the very first, but they, they were the ones who really, they took it to another level. DOA is really the first band who really carved out a path. And then Black Flag, they were so tireless in their touring and so, like Chuck Dukowski who booked them, the bass player, he was just fearless in his booking. He would just push and push and push. And they would go do, like they do a tour of the States, they do the loop, and they'd come back and they'd like lick their wounds for two days and go right back out and play all the towns that are 50 miles away from the first town. <laughs> you know, they'd be playing Worcester instead of Boston. Yeah. That kind of thing. They would just go do, they'd just do another, another loop. And amazing. And, but they were the ones that, you know, Chuck would just call and say like, yeah, we want to play. And it would happen. So it would make sense Black Flag would have played there. I could see that. Do you remember, uh, what was going on in Boston and, you know, summer '83. I don't. I wasn't hanging out up there. I mean, I knew, I knew, I knew. You know, the band. I knew. You know, as I think we we played with. Uh, we played Gang Green, I think, didn't we? That makes sense. D Y S or Gang Green, one of them. I don't remember, but I remember. And then OS is the control plate, of course. Um, but um, I just remember the kids. I didn't really like Boston. Yeah, I didn't really, I didn't do any time up there other than, like, just come up to see, like, to go to, sh- like, to play a show. I mean, mm-hmm. ironically, I, you know, I, I, mean, I had decided I was never going to go to college. In the, by 11th grade, I was not going to go to college, but my dad said I had to at least apply. Mm-hmm. So I, I applied to Emerson. Oh, and did the, you? And the only reason I applied to Emerson was because there was, I, someone sent me a tape of WERS, or maybe they sent me a tape. I think I just saw it in Boston Rock. They had like radio stations, like they had like playlists, and there was a DJ called Katie the Cleaning Lady on WERS, and she played great records. I was like, all right, well, I'll apply to this place, and I fucking got in. This is 19, I graduated in 1980, so it was in some point in 80. My, I said, you know, I, I had gotten into the school, and I told my dad, okay, I applied, I got in, but I'm not going. He's like, well, you at least got to go look at it. I said, all right. So I took a train up to Boston. My sister had a place out in Austin at the time, mm-hmm. so I stayed with her. We had a great time. Like we went to go see Lou Miami and the Cosmetics at Cantones. Like this, we saw Boys Life. These, you know, it was like it might have been eighty or seventy-nine or eighty. It was early. I guess it was eighty. Um, and um, and then I went down to Emerson. So I went in. This is Emerson at the time was just in a few little brownstones um, near Commonwealth. I mean, or on yeah. Commonwealth. I'm not sure. And so. I went into the main office and there was a woman sitting there typing. I think she was smoking a cigarette, not paying any attention to me. And I said, hi. And she's like, can I help you or something? I said, yeah, hi. I got, I got accepted to school and I was, wanted to take, I wanted to get a look at it. And she's like, okay, go ahead. Huh. And I said, all right. Now I sort of thought she'd direct me to like, you know, go to room seven and talk to so and so, but she didn't. So she just like go knock yourself she out. Said, go ahead. So I walked back out into the main, like the foyer, and as I recall, there was like a flight of steps to like a second. I walked up the flight of steps to the second floor. It was like a little like stairwell going up around the foyer, and there was a door. And I kind of opened the door and looked in. There was like five kids and a professor, and they kind of looked back at me when I opened the door, 
and I looked at them, and I closed the door, and I thought, all right, that'll do. And I walked <laughs> right back out the fucking door, and I went, I walked straight to Newberry Comics, and that was it. And I told my dad, okay, I went and looked at it. Um, and so you would say that, like, the channel was the first actual, like, venue that you guys had played. In Boston. In Boston. Yeah. I mean, other towns, for instance, in D.C., there's a place called the 930. Mm-hmm. Which was, but the thing about 930 is that they would do all ages shows. We had really worked with them, and they were super progressive. They were the ones who said, yeah, we can do this. But most towns, like, even, like, Seabees wasn't all ages. I was 16 and up. But most venues around oh, the wow. country, like in, in regular, like regular venues, were not all ages. You had to be, you know, 18 or 21, depending on the drinking age in that particular city. So mm-hmm. a place like the Whiskey in L.A. or um, um, a place like, I'm trying to think, like with the the East Side Club in Philly, or um, uh, and obviously like Pepper and Lounge and those places in New York. All these kinds of those rooms, they were all 18 or 21 and up. And not only were we not going to play there because we didn't believe in um, age discrimination, but also Brian wasn't 21, right? <laughs> Brian, the bass player, was probably 17 or 18 at that point. Oh, so he couldn't even get in the joint. Well, we could, but we're not going to. Fuck that. Ah, yeah. You know, so, so I think we just typically didn't play... Like when we played in LA, we played these giant, we played these weird halls, you know, or we played, there's a couple of smaller kind of clubs that would break, they would let you do all these shows, but most of the more circuit oriented joints, like the channel, they were pretty firm on their, you know, they just had a, it was, like a, it was Black Flag didn't have the same position, but we mm-hmm. definitely did, yeah, we definitely did. So the channel having all these shows was, uh, a unique thing, kind of. A I think we did. I think we did a daytime show. I'm gonna guess. That makes sense. Yeah, it was like a matinee show. That was the way to get around it. No, we were, we started doing matinees in the 9:30 club in 1981, and then CB mm-hmm. started doing them about a year later, two years later. We did Sunday matinee shows. I booked them. I think the channel kind of had that same philosophy of like, yeah, the Sunday matinee punk and hardcore shows. Yeah. Um, that makes then, sense. And so from Gravity Kid in 91. Right. That show would have been booked by this guy, Bobby Sullivan, who was mm-hmm. a D.C. kid. Um, he had been in, in the band Soulside, um, and he had uh, gone off to Boston University. He's going to BU. Um, and so he was in a band called Seven League Boots, and he, you know, I think he said, I can get you a show at the channel if you want to play with our band. I was like, yeah, let's do it. I think before that, we played Green Street Station in uh, Jamaica Plains. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Jamaica Plains. Or Plain? Jamaica Plain? Jamaica Plain, yeah, single. Single, yeah, Jamaica Plain. We played a, on my birthday, actually, in 1988. We played a place called Green Street Station. That was our first show in Boston. Then we did a show, I think we did a show Mass Art. Yep. And then we did the show... The channel. And that was the last time we played in Boston until 2001. Because, uh, there's a, you know, basically we were just, there's two things that happened in Boston. One was the Don Law company, the promoter, the people who, they controlled most of the rooms, um, they were not interested in 
two aspects that Fugazi insisted on. One was all they just shows. But the other thing, which I think was more challenging for them, is we insisted on low door prices. We wanted to do a $5 door. And they just were not willing. I mean, I'm the one who booked the band, so I know. I would talk, I would call them about these different rooms because we want to play a show in the city. But they would just not, they would not, um, yeah, they wouldn't budge on, they wouldn't tell me what their costs were, so we, they just give me a flat number for the room, which was impossible. Like, if you have a thousand capacity room, and they say, well, we need $5,500, that's the rent on the room. Well, obviously, that's not going to work if you're doing a $5 show. So, um, they were, they were, they had really, you know, they had blocked us. The other thing that happened was, I don't know what year it was, 90 something, but the quarterback for the New England Patriots, uh, Drew Bledsoe, I think, had, had maybe done a stage dive at, I don't know what the show was, Green Day maybe, or I don't know, some punk show, and he hurt a young woman, an underage kid. And um, as I understand it, the city council convened and immediately said, well, we need to create new legislation. The legislation they created was not that professional millionaire quarterbacks, you know, can't stage dive. They, The law they changed was they People under 18 can't be in these rooms, which is a typical kind of governmental reaction to to a you know a problem. Is you know you just screw the kids. Right. So we were really we couldn't play in Boston, and we didn't actually get. We played Worcester, we played Clinton, we played all around for years. We just played all these weird rooms outside of the city. But it wasn't until I think 2001 where people at Mass Art brought us brought us back. As you know, much I was glad. It seemed insane, Boston being like the you know, probably the most colleges per capita. There's plenty of fans up there. We just couldn't, we weren't allowed to play in the city because we, we had principles that didn't fit with the cities. That's pretty amazing because there's a lot about Don Law in this, uh, in the podcast and in the research that uh, we've done for this. You're not the first person to, to drop oh, that name, believe me. Yeah, Don, you know, there were, you know, this is not unusual. Again, in the 70s, a lot of the promoting promoters, they're regional promoters, and they were they were very mob-like. They just, you know, they were controlling their market, and it was considered that was proper. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't know if I don't think I ever dealt with Don Law directly, but this was his operation. I had the same problem with Bill Graham, by the way. BGP, Bill Graham presents in San Francisco, same fucking problem. And there was other mm-hmm. ones. There were other other cities. There's these dominant rock and roll promoters who really had a lock on the big rooms and. They were really um, unwilling to do things. The way Fugazi operated was that we we lived with the ticket price, and since we didn't work on we didn't work on guarantees, we worked on percentages. It was very important for us to break down the overhead on the show. Most bands start with a price, like we will play for this much money. So then the promoters decide, like, well, okay, we'll pay that much, but then we get to set the ticket price. But since Fugazi said we're working on percentages. Meaning, if there's a profit, we get a percentage of that profit. And there's no risk to the promoter, really. Mm-hmm. Then we said, if we're working on that, then we feel like we are entitled <clears throat> to set the ticket price and also to know what the actual costs are. Because almost all costs associated with venues are padded, right? Because everybody wants a bigger piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. But if everyone wants a bigger piece of pie, you, the, ultimately, you have to make a bigger pie. And that pie is the ticket price. Mm-hmm. 
we went at it from a different point of view. We start with a small pie and then figure out whether or not we can divvy it up in a way that makes everybody happy. But in the case of Don Law and his operation, or Don Law's operation, not him specifically, they were not willing to budge on that because they weren't, they were not interested in setting a precedent where other people can parse their numbers. This is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. But that's rock and roll. That's why it sucks. You know, that's a rock yeah. and roll business. And the channel, I don't know who ran it. Channel to me struck me as a room that's very much, very similar to a lot of other rooms in the country where it's like it was part of this like circuit of, of, of bands. Um, it was a good sized room, you know, it had a, and it had a bar and I don't know if it sold pizza, it probably sold something like that. And, but it was like, you know, a, basically it was, it was the tavern where the bands played and, um, and as a result, you know, you're going to get every like imaginable kind of band will be coming through it because it's just on, it's in the Rolodex of all the, of all the agents, you know, they know they have, you know, the Rolodex being a list of numbers and you can now find on your phone. But, um, but the, uh, uh, you know, the time, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's a room here called the Bayou in DC where, you know, I saw the damned, I saw the bad brains, I saw stiff little fingers, I saw the B-52s, I saw, um, you know, 999 and, you know, I saw all these different bands, but they also, you know, you know, fucking Nina Simone played there and Bruce Springsteen and, and, you know, you know, every imaginable kind of band played there. Um, that was, cause they were on that same circuit. And, you know, the, and the, ironically that, you know, the, the Bayou, which is run by a company called Cellar Door, Cellar Door became like the Mid-Atlantic big promoter. Like they were the ones that ran sort of the town for a while. DC, that's. And, and so Fugazi was here on St. Patty's Day, you said. Yeah, that was weird. I'm sure. I think that was, I feel like that was also kind of a day early show. I wish I had mine. I feel like that was probably also a matinee. I have this recollection of being out, you know, like not, it wasn't too late, but it was out. I remember having this feeling like, let's just get out of here because this town is going to pop off. Well, I was going to say, the channel's in Southie, so you were right in the- <laughs> People get a little punchy on St. Patrick's Day, especially up there. Yeah, so. they, uh, it, it's definitely something that is, um, you can set a watch by it. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like, I don't know what, I've been in Boston in years, but, um, you know, that, well, that would have been 1991. That, and I can, yeah. and so it was certainly, I'm sure, wherever the channel was. Were, uh, right, I, I was going to say, I don't remember there being anybody there. To me, it was there more was like, a, it was like, isn't it right on the water there? Yeah, it's right in like this industrial part of Southie yeah. where... I think that room was a pretty great room to play, as I recall. It was a good, it was like a, it was a live room, which means that the, sometimes when you play a room, when you play the, the acoustics of the room are, they're dead. Like they just don't, the room doesn't vibrate and, and, and you have to kind of, it's more of like as a musician or a performer, it's uphill. You have to kind of push and push, try to get something across. But some rooms just light up. My recollection about, you know, playing there was that that room was very, it vibrated. It was really a live room. Like people, and you got to send you, it was a good proximity. The crowd wasn't like, you know, a mile away. It was like, they're right there. And, and, you know, it was dingy. It was, you know, as, as most of these, they're black holes. You know, that's, they have a really specific, you know, if you go to a, a, a well-used playground, you know, then the, you know, the paint's rubbed off on the slide. And that's basically the same thing in rock venues, right? Just gets used. And, you know, 
the people who are cleaning it are just trying to get the vomit and the beer up. They're not going to not going to get do much more work than that. Um, people are so terrible. Um, people, I mean, something's been a long, as a person who's toured a lot and played in many, many rooms, I'm often struck by how poorly people treat the venues. Um, someone, the 930 was renovating down here, and they, the guy who owned it asked me, you know, if I would consult, if I had any suggestions. And I said, yeah, here's one. No graffiti in the dressing room. I said, because those of us who call the graffiti, like call the dressing rooms home, it's just depressing. Imagine if you had to wake up every day and see something that just says like suck a cock or, you know, pussy fart or whatever written on the wall. At some point you're like, this is just fucking bummy. But the way I look at it, most people who do that kind of stuff are tourists. But those of us who Mm -hmm. live here, whether like we live here on the road or we live in the dressing room, whatever, that's our, that's our home. And I don't understand why anybody would want to, like, I just feel like only a tourist would, 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 would shit in the corner. They don't, they're not living there. Um, and that's the way I feel about, like, a lot of, a lot of venues, the way people treat bathrooms is also insane. I mean, the way I, last time I checked, the toilet was our friend. But most people <laughs> who go to clubs don't seem to think that. Um, and I find that striking, you know, and again, it's, it's an act of a tourist. Um, and I think that the, uh, so I think that, yeah, clubs are not going to spend a lot of money trying to keep it nice. Not that it has to be fancy, but you just want it to be, like, you know, not disgusting. But yeah, well, nice. unfortunately, the uh, the days of sort of independent clubs like the channel are pretty far behind us. Yep, yep. Well, especially, I think, in a town like Boston. Boston it has, a, as I said, I think it has a long history of really... It's like rock and roll. It's like structural. The, the music, it's always been that way. I don't know why, what it is. Have you ever read Mansion on the what? Hill? You should read Mansion. Have you read Mansion on the Hill, that book? No. You should read that because it talks a lot about, you know, because Don Ball, I think he was BU. Mm-hmm. And he came up early on. And he was just a kid putting on shows. But then, you know, he got involved with, like, you know, there's the Springsteen, Springsteen connection and everything just... There's so much money got made all of a sudden and things. And then, you know, people just, I mean, there, there's a tradition uh, in rock and roll, which is, you know, sort of, it is, I mean, the mob used to run rock and roll. It was a great mm-hmm. way to launder money. And um, so I think that, you know, it goes back to like, you know, jazz. I mean, the mob certainly was running the clubs that a lot of jazz guys were playing. And if you think about people like Sinatra, he was certainly surrounded by the mob. And early rock and roll, I think that continued. I think the venues were largely controlled by mob or mob-like apparatus. The punk thing for us, though, is that we we defied that. We were like, oh, fuck that. We're not going to be involved with that, that old rock and roll stuff because that's just mobbed up. We're going to do our own shit. What year did the channel start doing shows? Uh, 80, 1980. That's when the channel opened? It was 1980? Wow, yeah. I would have thought it was around for like, you know, since 64 or something. That's funny. I was thinking Aerosmith must have played there in the early days, but I guess not. No, there are rumors that they did, but I don't believe that they're true. Well, I mean, Aerosmith wasn't doing club dates by 1980. I mean, they were, you know, at that point, dude. They're already <laughs> gone. Right, they're gone. But um, that's very, that's interesting. I had, I really thought it was a, a later, I mean, a much earlier club. That, But that sort of shows you... Like my, 
Like my grasp of what was going on in Boston in the beginning was just through Boston Rock. Did you ever look at the, you, you looked up issues of Boston Rock? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Write it down. That, look it up. I bet you'll find it. There's Boston oh, no, Rock was a. Oh, you have seen it. Yeah. Yeah, the Museum Monthly, and they certainly. There's got to be a lot of show reviews. I mean, I got to think that all the bands, you know, like I'm sure the Police played the channel. You know, in the early days, and you know those kind, of, you know, all those bands that were touring, The Cure, the British bands, they were coming through pretty traditional rock booking agencies. That's why I saw them at the Bayou. Same, you know, I saw those bands because they were coming through traditional rock booking agencies. Dukowski was in you know, Black Flag. They were the ones that kind of came at it from another point of view. They were not coming through an agency. They were just cold calling and somehow talking people into it. And that must have been that must have been a hard sell. And who answered the phone? I caught up with hometown hooligan Dickie Barrett of the Mighty Mighty Boston's as well. So do you remember how old you were when you first started going to the channel? I think, um, gosh, I got to say probably 17 years old, maybe, uh, you know, my senior year of high school for sure. And and maybe even my junior year. And, and all of that was convoluted, if you know anything about my um, education. But, uh, I do, um, I remember, uh, going in there for, uh, matinee hardcore shows, Minor Threat, um, the Circle Jerks, all of those, Black Flag, all of those great shows, and, um, and then, you know, various other shows. We went to, we went to shows at night as well in, in the, uh, in the channel and, and, and loved it. I, th- I thought it was both, uh, thrilling. It was, I had a great time, but I also I also found it at certain times scary. And and we we were in there to you know challenge just about everybody and everything. And you know we were we were in, in, in the Boston hardcore music scene was 
part of a scene that like was inventing, you know, how how bouncers bouncers versus the audience sort of thing versus uh I think that famous um cramps show where where I was accused of, of getting in a fight with with Lux Interior. I think that went down there at the channel for sure, which which uh never really happened. And then I remember one time being there for bad manners and um me and, and my friend uh Matt Badger who played keyboards and, and another ska band and, and other bands in Bo- around Boston. Really, really talented, super talented guy. We got chased around the channel neighborhood, uh, you know, f- for at least two hours by the staff that, that wanted, wanted to murder us for, you know, we got thrown out and they said, don't ever come back. And, you know, we said, fuck that. And then, Tried to watch the we we climbed down the side of the building and tried to watch the band through that horrible window and standing on like like um, broken pieces of wood and and a broken uh, pier or wharf or whatever was going along the side of the building and uh, we were spotted watching there and then they chased us where we and then we had to jump onto the bridge from uh the side of the building and then and then from there it was every turn we made there were you know half a dozen guys going there they are get them and uh, that went on f- until we finally made it back to his car which was parked in the lot <clears throat> we had to jump the fence to get down to his car and as we were jumping the fence they opened the back door and saw us again it's like and they came running at us and it was this old rambler he owned an old like 1960s rambler and it wouldn't start and finally it was like a, a scene out of a movie finally started as they got onto the car and started pummeling it but uh we drove away as they were falling off and uh it was sort of it, you know as i say it was magical it was sort of this just this awesome combination of, of street people whether it was the you know street punks that were attending the show and then and it was just in that tremendous neighborhood and and all of this you know as as i listen to your podcast comes back to me of of just how it was my mother worked for years pardon me i was saying my mother worked for years in the building that was directly on the opposite side of the parking lot just across the street she worked for a brewster wallpaper so she was you know while i was uh, in the um, channel, she was a saleswoman for this wallpaper company that was housed in another brick building, just you know, within eyesight of the um, of the front door of the place. Strangely oh, enough, she only knew. <laughs> she did. <laughs> if she had any that. idea what you were up to, well, I mean, I, I, it was just kind of the you know, which is pretty good. Uh, analogy because it's you know if if anybody only knew anything you know which was we were all so wonderfully you know and happily bliss and to to the to the to the goings on and 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 you know both a part of it and and you know unaware of it at the same time you know but it was but that was the magic of it it wasn't like you know I mean everything had to be at that time had to be word of mouth and and not. There was, there was no social media, and and another great thing about it too is you had to be there. It wasn't like right. you know the next yeah you know, the next morning you you get a full 
you know, rundown from all of your friends. You had to be there, and then you had to be wherever you had to be the next day to just to just to go over the the events and 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 the shows I saw there. And also, I played my very first punk rock show. So so uh, they have you have the channel to blame for for me and and my career as well because I was uh, in a band called the Impact Unit that opened up at that insane uh, Misfits show hardcore show that had a good handful of bands playing with the Misfits and that that was a tremendous show there's a great picture of of the black flag show and and with a pig pile on stage and and all of the you know the the kingpins of Boston hardcore all over the stage including like Paul Punky Richards and and uh, Al Burrow Al Lethal from SSD and and just in this big kind of pile up and Henry's got you know I think the bouncers have me by my feet and Henry has uh, me by my arm he's trying to like keep them from dragging me out and uh, there's it's a lot of great good black and white pictures from I think Phil and Flash was shooting away at those shows and, and uh, as well as well as a guy named I think his name was Bruce Rhodes was his name um, I hope I get his name right. I hope that's his name. But but and 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 other people too. I'm I'm sure I just insulted other great hardcore photographers of the day. But uh, there was another great picture that I think it hung for years in uh, Walker's Western wear of of just all of us standing out in the parking lot, you know, skateboards and bald heads and you know, and uh, God, it was. So long ago, but but seems like yesterday to me. But it seems like in my head, it's either a hundred years ago. Or it was just yesterday. So anyway, thanks for letting me uh, reflect. Do you have any questions? I think you nailed <laughs> every single thing that I had any question looking for on that. That just took me. I, I had like a flashing images of everything you're trying to tell me. I'm trying to keep up with it, but. That right. Is, yeah, that's that's what we're. If you recorded it, it, if you recorded it, go ahead, edit it into your thing if you if you'd like to. I don't do a ton of this stuff, I, but I'm I'm enjoying the uh, podcast. So if it's if it's useful, go ahead. And it um, certainly will be. I'm I'm so grateful. You need clearance for a song. I think I think podcasting clearance, but anything you need, me and uh, Darren Hill will. You know, I mean, I give you a thumbs up if you want to use it. Go ahead. Take care of yourself. I really appreciate it. See ya. Where did you go? Boston Venue, the channel story, was conceived and created by Harry Boris. Executive producer, David Ginsberg. This episode was produced by Nate Holman. Written by Harry Boris. Contributing writers... David Ginsberg and Nate Holman. Recording engineer, Tori Lamb. Audio production by Dan Tebow. Graphic designer, Lisa St. John Bennett. Storytellers in this episode, Ian Mackay, Dickie Barrett, and Nate Holman. Music courtesy of the Mighty Mighty Boston's Where'd You Go? You also heard Filler by Minor Threat and Cash Out by Fugazi. Don't miss the next original episode of Boston Venue Backstories when we hear from an original whaler reggae giant Peter Tosh, who shares strong views on everything from a nuclear war and social justice to herbal medicine, reggae music, 
and the blessings of the almighty Ja Rastafari. Boston Venue The Channel Story has been nominated by the Boston Music Awards 2019 for Music Podcast of the Year. Be sure to cast your vote at bostonmusicawards.com slash vote. And don't forget to subscribe.